Uber has this network of people that go out and provide a service, right? And then Uber captures some of the fees and the people who provide the service capture some of the fees. And there's this tension between the two. And, you know, we've seen that play out, right? Where drivers want more money. And, you know, so LPs and uni token holders, who's collectively the company, are going to have to play this game of, you know, how much do we want? Because ultimately, if the uni token doesn't accrue any fees and Uniswap, you know, as a, as a collective doesn't accrue any fees, then, you know, on some level, uh, it's not really sustainable what they're doing. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. Santi is sitting this one out. We got my co-founder, Mike Ippolito, joining us. Uh, and then we are joined by the semi-benevolent dictator, or should I say former semi-benevolent dictator of uh, some synthetics. Kane, I don't know what uh, you are describing yourself as these days, but either way, welcome to Empire, my friend. Yeah, thanks so much. I guess it depends on who you ask, whether it's former or, or current. Uh, but the, the former or current is who, who you ask, but semi-benevolent dictator is, is true, though, yes? I think that's fair. I think that's fair, yeah. Nice. How did you get the nickname? Um, you know, I used to be just like the dictator, right? Um, and uh, not, even, not even benevolent. Um, and then I think, you know, we got to a point where uh, we were like, okay, you know, we need to uh, decentralize things and give up um, power to the community. And, you know, we started that process. Uh, and I think people were like, wait a second, like, you know, you're very aggressively kind of advocating for certain positions and, and you're arguing with people. Um, you know, this is not necessarily what we were expecting, you know, giving up power. And, and my argument was, well, you know, if you give up power and you create a process where anyone can, you know, have a voice, right, then I should be able to have my own voice and my own opinions and, and my own perspective. And um, that's, you know, gone, gone fairly well, I think. But there's some people who sometimes get a bit annoyed about vocal I am about certain things. <laughs> I think things have gone all right though. So yeah. well we've come a long way since the uh the the dictator days of 2018 and 2019 and depths of the bear market. You have this idea about like just different metrics that matter uh in different bull markets, right? So if you look at ICOs, uh the metric that like 2017 and like just the market ripping then the metric that mattered was how much money can you raise, right? Then it's like DeFi summer 2020, the number that matters is is uh is really total value locked is TVL. Uh, and I've heard you talk about the metric that will matter. It doesn't maybe matter as much now, but it, you think it will matter. And we can maybe meme this into existence is, uh, mm. is, is fees, right? So I'd love to just maybe kick off this conversation, starting with, with that idea. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, actually. I had um, a pretty prominent um, person in my DMs uh, last night in, in the crypto space who was like, oh, token terminal kind of shows you guys are throwing off uh, quite a lot of fees, like what's going on there. Um, and we got into a bit of a discussion about it. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, I think fee TVL, you know, sounds like a metric that is, um, I guess, fairly fungible, right? Like TVL and curve and TVL and synthetics. But the reality is that TVL, you know, is, is a very blanket term for a lot of different things, right? There's things, you know, there's TVL that's in like, you know, uh, staking like single-sided staking pools which you know is one thing this you know stable coin pools have tvl so when you look at tvl um you know it's not like this kind of homogenous thing right I, I think um and that makes it easy to gain because if you can boost cheap tvl which is low risk right you can you can make things look uh better than they are and i think that there were a lot of those kind of you know games that were played and back in the, the tvl days um and then you know over time people get a bit more sophisticated and they're like okay like we can see that, you know, this 
protocol has you know, certain things. And I think we'll see that play out with fees as well. Um, because when you look at fees for synthetics, let's say, right? Um, and, and even if you compare it to Uniswap. So Uniswap generates uh, the most fees of any DeFi protocol, right? By like a, a pretty significant margin, but it doesn't pay any fees to token holders, right? It, only, it doesn't pay any fees to the protocol. It only pays fees to uh, liquidity providers, which is fine. You know, liquidity providers are doing a thing. Um, you know, whether you know whether and when the fee switch gets switched on will be uh, a pretty significant change, right? Because once the fee switch is on, then you, as a uni token holder, are going to get some kind of fee yield, and you can do you know calculation and and what have you. So even within um, you know those two protocols that are kind of in the top ten, synthetics is is very different, right? Because your uh, your kind of risk profile and like risk adjusted return is different, and and the same thing goes for Uniswap as well. Like if you're an LP in you know a stablecoin pool, as long as it's not UST, you're, you're probably okay, right? Um, and uh, you know if you're an LP in like with some random shitcoin, well then you know your IL risk is is going to be very high, right? So like there's even within you know uh, different kind of fee metrics, the the risk adjusted return is is very different. So I think that this is something that you know collectively you have to get more sophisticated about. Um, but luckily I think you know TradFi has spent a lot of time working out you know how to how to calculate kind of you know risk adjusted returns and things like that. Um, so you know, hopefully we can take some of the good stuff of that and, and translate it to DeFi. Kane, okay, I have a question for you. What do you think will be the determining factors for protocols that are capable of commanding fees versus ones that don't? Or aren't capable of commanding those fees. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I think we still don't have a good um, kind of frameworks for for even reasoning about this yet, um, because you know every protocol is is kind of so different and, and you know, has like all of these idiosyncratic uh, kind of uh, challenges, right? In, in terms of like how you think about fees and, and how they're earned and who earns them and where do they go and how they're distributed, all of that stuff. Um, so, you know, I think my, my sense is that like, again, if you look at something like Uniswap, um, you know, if they switch on fees, how, how much of the fee yield do you need to transfer to uni token holders? Because, you know, it's a zero sum game, right? You're taking fees from LPs. How impactful is that to LPs that are trying to, you know, um, you know, do the thing, right? There's a service that's being provided, which is liquidity, right? And you're paying the people who are providing the service 100% of the revenue, right? Um, it's it's an interesting concept. It's very different to a business, right? Like a, a business, you know, kind of turns up, provides a service and captures 100% of, uh, you know, it's probably the cl a closer analogy is something like an Uber, Right. So, you know, Uber has this network of people that go out and provide a service. Right. And then Uber captures some of the fees and the people who provide the service capture some of the fees. And there's this tension between the two. And, you know, we've seen that play out. Right. Where drivers want more money. And, you know, so LPs and uni token holders, who's collectively the company, are going to have to play this game of, you know, how much do we want? Because ultimately, if the uni token doesn't accrue any fees and Uniswap you know, as a, as a collective doesn't accrue any fees, then, you know, on some level, uh, it's not really sustainable what they're doing. But why can, why now? Like, so you say it's not sustainable. And I think what you're getting at is like, if all we're doing, if, if we're not actually giving, if we're not, if we don't have this nice cycle and this nice like feedback loop here, and we're not actually spitting back cash flows, then like, what are we all almost doing here? But if yeah. you look at Uber, Uber has been around for 
13, 12, 13 years, founded in like 2009, 2010. I feel like, I mean, I'm in Manhattan right now. It used to be $5 rides anywhere in Manhattan. Now it's 40, 50, 60 bucks, but only in the last like year or two did, mm. did that change really happen. So, and like when you look at things like Uniswap, it's like really only have they had a lot of volume for let's call it two years. Um, so it's like, why can't we just almost keep subsidizing this stuff in the way that like Uber and Airbnb and Lyft and all of them subsidized it for, for nearly a decade. So I think, you know, at a fundamental level, it's okay to subsidize things to bootstrap them, right? I think we took the idea of like blitz scaling and subsidizing and, and whatever uh, to uh, a, a degree that was probably unsustainable, right? And how did we do that? Well, we had this crazy, you know, asset bubble based on money printing that was inflated. And so VCs had, you know, infinite amounts of money to dump into uh, you know, companies to allow them to unsustainably grow or unsustainably, you know, um, uh, subsidize uh, services, right? Um, until they did. Right? And I think now we're kind of seeing the end of that party. Um, so, you know, ultimately then the question is, okay, you know, at what point can uh, a, a business like Uber kind of become sustainable, right? And, and at what point should it become sustainable? My view is like, you realistically should try and become as sustainable as you can, as soon as you can. Right. Um, obviously, there's you know there's definitely a payoff curve there, right? And you don't want to do it too early because you could have scaled much larger. But I, you know, the reality is, I think Uber could have absolutely uh, you know switched that if they didn't have VCs pouring money into them. They absolutely right. could have. You know, the Vision Fund alone, right, subsidized billions of dollars worth of uh, worth of you know low cost rides, right? And so, like when you when you ask the question of DeFi, like you know, DeFi is supposed to be more efficient. Right, it's supposed to be less overheads, less you know all this stuff. If Uniswap and Synthetics and Aave and Compound have been around for you know three, four, five years in some cases, right, uh, can't get to a point where we start to become sustainable. I'm not saying we have to be 100% sustainable today, but like we start that process, then you know we're kind of just playing the same game, right? That that we've seen you know uh, a bunch of SaaS companies and. and uh, and, and other companies play for the last 10 years, which I just don't think we need to play anymore. I think we really can get to a point where, the, you know, so like a company that, that's starting today or a project that's starting today, go nuts, subsidize, raise money, you know, whatever. Uniswap and synthetics and, you know, the blue chip DeFi's have been around for four years. Like we kind of got to get serious now. Do you think the ability to fork and uh, just the fact that everything's open source code, uh, open source code in crypto is different? It's like because the example of Uber, right? Basically, the VC model is just fund a monopoly, right? You, you, what you yeah. want to do is you want to subsidize, subsidize, subsidize. At the end of the day, what you want is a monopoly, so that finally, when you do jack the prices back up, no one's left to compete with you. But in crypto, you have the option to fork, right? So, do you think that's a fundamentally different dynamic that limits the ability to compete with that same strategy? So it's interesting because like this idea of forking and fees and everything was like a huge discussion topic, theoretical discussion topic during the last bear market, right? Because we were all bored and mm -hmm. we had to come up with something to feel about. <laughs> Just right? wanted to talk about shit. Yeah, we had to talk about some <laughs> dumb thing, right? So like I think, you know, that like was the topic for like every Thursday for like, you know, a year or something. It's like, no, but you can't do this because it'll get forked or whatever. 
I don't think, and again, I might be wrong, right? Even um, maybe uh, that like anti-Justin Sun fork, um, I can't remember the, the name of the protocol, but like, you know, I don't know how that's going now. The, the one that forked and took all his tokens away, um, uh, I literally, I, it's, I'm having a, drawing a blank on the name of it, but you know, it was a project that had been around for like five years. Justin Sun bought it and took it over. And uh, like, I don't know how that fork is going, right? Like maybe fine, but there's not many good examples out there of protocols that have been forked, right? The, I think the expected effort of maintaining a protocol that people had back in 2017, 2018, that like, oh, it's just some code, you deploy it and then walk away, um, has been kind of invalidated, right? Like you need a community, you need people who are, you know, maybe they're not doing this in like a centralized fashion. Maybe it's this, this kind of, as I said, with Unisort, like a loose collective of people that's advocating and educating, whatever. But if you remove that, um, you know, it, it, the momentum uh, drops significantly. I think is my is my view. So I think the idea of forking to remove fees is uh, is more of a theoretical construct than it is like a practical concern. Do you think there's a this is kind of multi coins theory? So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to paraphrase basically, but I kind of do like oh, it. This this is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. But the, the idea of like managing risk as an ability to fork your protocol. So like Uniswap, like an exchange model, you're not managing any financial risk there, right? You're just connecting buyers and sellers. So the mm-hmm. idea is that you could fork an exchange, right, and just offer higher, you know, subsidies essentially on this new fork, and you might get a bunch of mercenary liquidity, like. And that it's it's less there's less of a moat, whereas something like Maker or something like that, really mm. what the moat is there is that you're underwriting risk, and it's like okay, I can fork Maker tomorrow, but like, are all of these units going to come along with me and like maintain all of that competence and that balance sheet? Like, probably less less so. So I'm wondering if e- even within, because I, I tend to agree with you, it's like I I don't think you can just keep forking the nth iteration of a thing and p- expect people to follow. But I wonder if even within different classes of DeFi protocol, maybe like managing a balance sheet or, or managing some risk yourself is also more of a moat. I, I actually think there are a lot more moats than people realize, right? And, you know, my assumption um, around that argument is that Kyle had, you know, funded some maker competitor, and, you know, the day before <laughs> was coming out with some psyops campaign to justify the investment or whatever. But, um, but like, I think... What do you think uh, about Multicoin, Kane? <laughs> you know, I, look, I, I'll actually say this, right? Like, I will, I will you know, and I, I don't know if I've said this publicly because I've had a number of debates with Kyle and, and you know, kind of had had some uh some interactions with them on twitter i've actually recommended them to a number of funds of fun, like funds of funds for whatever reason um they somehow got me on their rolodex and they they ping me every once in a while to be like hey we're thinking about you know making an investment into you know this crypto hedge fund or this one or whatever what do you think and i've actually never not recommended multi-coin um because i think that multi-coin is super opinionated um I think they're wrong, but if you want exposure to like certain areas of crypto, you, you know, if you just go down like this maxi path, if you're path, if you're a fund, right, you want exposure to people that are kind of maybe a bit counterintuitive in their thinking, whatever. So, like, yeah. I actually think MultiCoin is fine, um, but you know, tactically, I don't agree with um, some of the things that they do. But not not to go on a wise. not to go on a yeah. random tangent about funds, Kane. But who do you think who who if someone's like I'm. Either I'm raising capital for three fund uh, from three funds, or I'm allocating to three funds. Who are like the best? Who are your favorite funds in crypto right now? 
Um, I mean, obviously, got a lot of love for a framework, right? Um, you know, they they sure. kind of turned up in the bear market. Um, you know, were one of the first funds to really get behind synthetics, like post pivot and everything. So, um, you know, we we obviously have grown up a lot since then, and, and you know, are not as connected uh, to them as as we you know were back in the day. But I still, you know, I, I actually had um, Michael on my mentorship program uh, last week. Uh, so, you know, we, we you know, keep in touch uh, pretty regularly. So framework, I think, are great. Um, and then it, from there, it kind of depends on what you're doing and, and who, um, you know, you like, I don't want to go and shill some of the funds that I'm an LP in, but like, um, you know, realistically, if you're super early stage, there's some funds that are too big for you. You want, you know, people that are more like angels. So like for early stage, like you know, a company or a project raising their first round, um, my view is always like try and get as many angels in as you can, um, and then find like a fund that you think is high conviction in that space and it will kind of come with your ledger. Let's get back to Mike's. I want to. I want to get your. I want to get your answer to uh, Mike's multi-coin question, though. Oh, sorry. What was the What was the question? I, I got it was totally just just about like just within different models, right? Like the ability, like managing risk, like kind of balance right. sheet risk, yeah. and having yeah. like just moats around forkability. I, I guess. Yeah. Look, I, again, you know, I think the the immediate answer is, is you know my my kind of take on it that like I think there are a lot more moats out there than people realize, right? Like, um, right. you know, people think that something is as simple as just deploy code, walk away. I don't think that, you know, even the simplest DeFi protocol really works like that because you're still operating in a competitive marketplace and there are a lot of alternatives to do the same thing. And absent, you know, all of the kind of structure that you need around, uh, you know, kind of information uh, dissemination and education and all those sorts of things, like you can deploy code and walk away and it can just kind of sit there. But um, you know, if you don't have the the infrastructure around it, it's going to be really hard to scale it up. That, that aligns with how I like that makes sense to me. That just aligns with like how I think companies are built. And I'm like, okay, if you just like, let's take Blockworks, for example, if you just copy pasted like every single our website, every single piece of content on the site, all of this, if you copy pasted this exact interview and put it out on a different RSS feed, I'm like, well, there's no, there's no marketing. Like there are no users. There and it no, goes like, stale maybe, really quickly, right? Like, yeah, you know, it goes stale. There's it no strategy. Stale. And yeah, yeah. Agreed. so yeah. And, and I just think that's broadly true for almost everything, right? Like, you know, if you have three things that are doing the same thing, two of them are kind of out there, like advocating, you know, educating, doing all of these things to, to you know, make themselves accessible and, and you know, build awareness. And one of them is not. Even if it's the same code, like the one that's not is just going to kind of disappear into obscurity. Although it doesn't totally disappear, does it? It no. usually goes down to like, it retains like 5% of the value of yeah. the successful fork. Yeah, agreed. Right? 100%, uh, which is and, weird. I mean, that speaks to like crypto market inefficiency more than like anything, right? Like I think, you know, tokens never go to zero, right? They go to like 0. 0.00001 or something. <laughs> Okay, so I, I thought that as well. Uh, and actually, our, our newsletter writer, Byron, wrote a newsletter on this, and we got a response. Um, wow. I, I don't want to, I'm going to protect the names of the units, but I thought it was sure. a very interesting observation, which is one answer to the mystery, right, which is why do these uh, why do these forks retain any values like the Ethereum Classic or the Bitcoin Cash or whatever, uh, is that nobody wants to short them and the owners don't want to sell down there. It's a common thing in very cheap stocks. Mm. A company is very clearly bankrupt, but the stocks trades at 150 at a decent value valuation because nobody wants to short it and the holders just can't be bothered to sell when it's down 95%. So it's a kind of standard stable disequilibrium, if you will, which actually I thought was like the best explanation for why these things 
still exist. That makes sense. Yeah. Like, I, I guess it's just a question of why is that equilibrium or disequilibrium so high in, in many cases, right? Like it seems like there's a, a, you know, an opportunity. And I think that kind of speaks to the inefficiency, like, you know, penny stocks trading at like a $3 million, you know, um, valuation or whatever, fine. Weird zombie networks that are trading at like a billion dollar valuation, like that seems like they're, you know, but I, I agree, like there is no incentive to short them because, you know, how many times have people gone, gone short, short, you know, wrecked shorting a sunk scam or whatever, right? Like, you know, it's, it's dangerous to short a crypto. Okay, now I want to get your take. We're two years removed from DeFi summer. And two of the biggest things to come out of that was like, you know, you had Uniswap kind of kicked off this airdrop season. Then you had Compound kicked off liquidity mining. We're two years almost removed from that. A lot of folks have talked about copy pasta. Like a lot of folks have kind of just dove into liquidity mining and, and airdrops. And I think now a lot of folks are reflecting saying like, well, was that actually good capital coming in? It's probably more like mercenary capital coming in and then they're quick to leave. What are your thoughts now that you've had some time to reflect on liquidity mining, airdrops, all these different incentives that were really designed to increase TVL? I think that what works in a bear market doesn't necessarily work in, in a bull market, right? And DeFi summer mm. really happened in a bear market, right? Like it was kind of you know one of the catalysts, I think, um, that, you know, one of the things that had momentum coming out of the last bear market. And if you think about, you know, what yield farming did, um, and, you know, again, like yield farming is a very blanket term, right? There's a lot of different things. Like you could include synthetics inflation, right? And, you know, realistically, synthetics inflation, you know, going from a, a fixed supply token to an inflationary token saved the project. Right. It, were it not for that, uh, there was no way that people would have paid attention to synthetics, right? Like that, that yield right. from staking was what kind of drove the activity. And then following on from that yield farming within like Uniswap to create liquidity, you know, um, in, in like uh, entry and exit liquidity for um, SUSD and, and the other synths, right, was another thing that kind of drove awareness. So my view is that the, the yield farming campaigns that synthetics did were the things that allowed it to survive. Right. Like when we talk about, you know, kind of unsustainable um, incentives to bootstrap, like we kind of got to the bottom, right, you know, in early 2019 and then looked around and said, OK, like if we're going to pull this thing out, like we need to, um, you know, of the tailspin, this death spiral that it's in. Right. We're going to need to do something uh, kind of you know, pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Right. And, and so that was where we came up with some of these like yield farming uh, ideas to kind of drive that. Um, so I do think that like in the right environment, it can, it can work. Um, obviously, you know, sometimes it doesn't go well, but like even looking at compound, right? Like, and a lot of people would say like they massively overpaid for liquidity or whatever. They were juicing up TVL, which, you know, at the time was the metric that everyone wanted to pay attention to. But I think if you went around and asked the average person who was still in crypto in the bear market, right? Three months before compound launched their, their token and started yield farming, maybe a third of them would have known about compound. Maybe. I agree with that. Like, you know, and yeah. then by by day three of compounds, uh, you know, <laughs> yield farming thing, a hundred percent of people knew about compound. And when I say like, you know, crypto people, I mean like even like Bitcoin maxis and stuff, right? That are like in their own little bubble off here. Like if you asked, you know, Samson Mao, he'd be like, Yeah, I know about compound. I hate it, but like, you know, he knows about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so I, I do think that like when you've 
when you factor in, even though they gave away a lot of value, right? And they probably overpaid and they could have, you know, it's hard to get that sweet spot right. But like they could have definitely given a lot less yield and gotten the same result. But they demonstrated that you can go from, you know, uh, like awareness, market penetration, whatever you want to call it, of 20% of, of all crypto to 100% in the space of like five days if you have like significantly, you know, uh, high enough yield, right? And And so I do think that like, that advertising, if you if you went out and did like any kind of traditional advertising campaign or whatever, try and build that level of awareness, would cost you, who knows, tens of millions, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, right, to, to get that level of, uh, of kind of market awareness. So it can work. I don't even think it would have worked. Yeah, I don't even think you could have yeah, spent infinite dollars. Yeah. It wouldn't have worked. You're probably right. Yeah. You're probably right. And, and so, you know, in that regard, you say, well, it obviously it was a success, right? Could it have been cheaper? Absolutely. But, you know, the flip side of that is if it was too much cheaper, maybe it doesn't work at all, right? Like there's some tipping point and you don't know, um, you know, yeah. before, before you start what that's going to be. So I look at that. The flip side is I look at airdrops, right? And airdrops, thankfully, are not the responsibility of DeFi. Airdrops started back in the ICO days as a way of like offsetting private sales, as, you know, throwing a bone to the masses or whatever, you know, whatever the, the kind of tactical um, move was there. So, you know, we inherited airdrops. And then I think most of the early DeFi projects did airdrops. Um, it was probably Uniswap that like revived the airdrop concept yeah. right yeah. like doing it with yeah. a token after they'd raised a bunch of money and deployed a bunch of stuff like that was a, a different kind of conceptual airdrop but i still i think today my view of airdrops is that they are a failure versus yield farming like i think if you compare those two things i think yield farming still has value in, in the right kind of yield and especially in a bear market i think yield farming can work effectively i think that airdrops are a failure Maybe, let me let me try to push back which is airdrops now are um you see activity happening pre-airdrop and even pre-token on things because there's a it's it's like airdrops might be a failure for the project, but they're actually a net benefit for the space because they get people to try new protocols and new new projects hmm. um, and try and try new products. So like there are products that are like their products are like pretty crappy to be honest, and they're pre-token, but like people are people go and use them, and they can get like their first ten thousand users because there's an expect because you have these like airdrop farmers, and there's an mm -hmm. expectation that they that the that they might get an airdrop, and then for like one out of fifty of the products, the product's actually pretty good. So then they go and share it, and it goes and it goes viral, um, and you kind of see this with like pseudo swap. Maybe you could mm -hmm. say this is happening right now. Yeah, I'm, you know, again, like information dissemination in crypto is very hard, right? Uh, like it's super inefficient. I, I was talking to um, one of my mentor projects uh, like a couple of days ago, and I was like, it doesn't matter how good of a thing you do, right? Like, you know, it's the equivalent of like $100 uh, bill in, you know, in, in the middle of, um, you know, uh, Times Square or something like that, right? Like, that $100 bill in crypto can stay there for like weeks or months, right? Because there's just money everywhere. It's chaotic. Like no one believes anything that anyone says. Like there's all this like disinformation and stuff. And so, you know, when you look at like market efficiency and, and like the efficiency of information flows, it's really, really weak in crypto, right? The amount of times you've, I've seen something where like some project does something, it's really successful and it takes like three months or six months before anyone even pays attention to it. Yield farming and airdrops are a way of kind of short-circuiting that, right? I think that was like the market solution to like, how do I get people to pay attention to me today versus in like six months that it would take from like normal, you know, 
tactics of, of kind of you know, going on podcasts or you know writing blog posts or whatever it was that people were doing. So that's fine. But then when you think, okay, so I've got tokens and I'm going to use those tokens to incentivize people to pay attention to me, right? And mm-hmm. you think about what are the some of the kind of you know approaches that I could take. When I look at like the you know the kind of uh, continuum of different approaches, you know, like a pure airdrop to just a bunch of random people, right? Which is the old days, like you literally sign a form and you get tokens, right? Like that that kind of you know end of the spectrum to me is a failure. As you come closer to like you know yeah. you have to do certain things and you know it starts to look more like yield farming, like your point of like there are people using the protocol to qualify for an airdrop. Like that's almost like, you know, pre yield farming sort of stuff. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question just in terms of, um, you know, I have this debate actually with a friend, just like the expense. Uh, so like if you view yield farming as like a very expensive form of customer acquisition, like marketing, uh, you could look at that and say, wow, that's like really expensive but it's also not a cash expense, right? And a lot of these protocols, like very early stage, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have liquidity, right? Like look at what's happening right now with like Lido and Gitcoin and they're all trying to diversify into stables, right? There's like a very limited ability to do that. So like I hear you on the ones, like you can look at the dollar, be like, you sold for what? You know, how expensive was that? But like on the other hand, how readily was the actual cash available for that as well? Like do you have a thought uh, just on like, just equity finance versus like actually converting the cash. Uh, look, there's no question, you know, being able to like give people equity, right? Give people ownership in a protocol, right. um, you know, is not a cash expense, right? Like if you look at PayPal's, right. you know, the original blitz scaling move was PayPal giving $10 to every person who signed up another person, right? Like this referral bonus. Now, okay, you can't give out free money unless you have KYC to like, you know, anti-civil it, right? Like realistically, like, and even then I'm right. sure, you know, they lost millions of dollars to like civil attacks or you know, fraud or whatever like that, but they didn't care, right? Like it allowed them to scale up to a point where they became, you know, critical to eBay's infrastructure and then that whole thing, right? So you look at some of these like startup stories of, you know, early, like, you know, web one startups, right? Like, you know, back in the, like, you know, ancient history days, right? Um, you know, this, this kind of thing has been going on, but if PayPal had had the ability to give away PayPal equity, right? Now, on one hand, dollars are more powerful than equity, right? For a lot of people, because dollars are dollars, you can use them today, you know, versus equity. But if there is an open market and a semi-liquid market for their equity, they're a good proxy for dollars, right? Like it might, you know, cost more because whatever. So I think when you look at some of these tactics and, and what you can do, like, yes, it's absolutely beneficial that we are able to spend, you know, non-cash consideration for attention, right? And, and you know, to, to your point, I think about like markets, right? Like um, it is better for the market to have this mechanism, right? Because it, it drives attention to different things that otherwise wouldn't be able to get attention. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. My question about airdrops and, you know, even like ignoring pure airdrops or whatever is that you remove the need for any kind of conviction. Right. So this is the thing that, that I, that I have an issue with, right. Is that like yield farming required conviction. You had to put your own money into a contract that, you know, I mean, it was probably staking rewards to all, but like you had to put your money into some contract that someone had coded and you needed to believe, you know, and if you wanted like real yield, right, you might have to put like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Like some people put like a meaningful amount of their assets into these yield farms, right? And it became this, uh, this game of 
who's in there, you know, and, and people would look at certain wallets and be like, oh, that wallet's in there. So this must be safe. They've vetted it, et cetera. And there, you know, there was this game during DeFi summer of like, which things are safe, which aren't safe and, and what have you. But the reality is you needed conviction. So even if you're yield farming and then selling, you had some cost almost, right? Like there was a cost to you acquiring these tokens. And I think when you get free tokens just for doing a service or something like that, um, there's a lack of conviction, which I think could be rectified. I don't have necessarily the solution yeah. to this, but I think that removing the need for like some kind of conviction is, is a, a negative on, on the airdrop side. Yeah. Hmm. Everything that we're talking about is very B2C focused. So like yield farming, airdrops, these are ways to get users onto your onto your protocol and onto your platform. I want to get your take on B2B or like what feels like, like DAO to DAO, which feels like the next evolution of what's happening in DeFi. I was looking at some of the stuff going on with Synthetics. You guys have like SIP 267. It allows you guys to integrate directly into applications. It, I don't think this is official. I saw something on Twitter. It's like the Synthetics team is looking to create a direct integration with Aave for a direct deposit module. Reminds me of like what Maker feels very similar with like yeah, to Maker's D, yeah, D3M mm -hmm. um, with, with Aave, uh, which obviously they're scaling that up uh, with probably other protocols coming soon. What is the, what is the future of like DAO to DAO? And like, is that is that where all of this goes where you have like the base layer of these like OG, like original DeFi protocols that are kind of using other newer uh DeFi applications is like the front end? I, again, I, I think this kind of goes back to that like earlier point about moats, right? And, and people's assumptions about um, what would happen versus, you know, what, what actually transpired, um, which is that composability was supposed to just be this open permissionless thing, right? And like you just turn up and you've got this contract and you connect it, right? The reality is that just connecting two contracts is often not enough, right? And the reality is that even with composability, Oftentimes, in order for something to work, you know, it, there needs to be some like engineering effort on both sides, right? Which now you're into like, you know, B2B kind of, uh, you know, um, there's a whole, there's a whole thing, right? Around like how you, you know, approach and negotiate and like deal with these things. And so I think we're seeing that where like most of the um, easy integrations, you know, simple, uh, simple kind of purely permissionless integrations. Um, have been kind of, uh, have been done, right? And, and you know, that's that easily accessible stuff has been done. But the harder stuff, which required convincing the other community to make changes that you needed, you know, that's like this next evolution, I think, in, in you know, composability. But it's not permissionless composability the way that everyone imagined. Uh, you know, it's funny about that. Um, Jason and I have talked a lot about like M&A and when is M&A coming to crypto, so to speak. Uh, one thing that's very funny is like if you consider moat like to be a big uh, or sorry, community to be a big moat for crypto, like the number one reason why M&A fails is, uh, you know, what's it, what's it like cultural differences, yeah. right? Um, yeah. so, you know, so it's just very interesting. Uh, and I'm I'm curious to see how that all ends up playing out in crypto, frankly. I think the, the biggest impediment to crypto M&A right now is the fact that like seniorage, whatever you want to call it, profits or, you know, the ability to print your own money, make your own money and, and the speculative premium, even in the bear market that is applied to that is so outlandish that it really makes it hard for two communities to come together and, and merge, right? Like Synthetics has looked at this a number of times, right? Like, okay. You know, I mean, you can look like the, the Rari, Faye, 
fiasco. I think there's other issues going on there, but like, it's really hard to even get to a point where you can agree on what the value of a thing is when there's like this, you know, tradable token that has a liquid ish market that has this speculative premium attached to it that might be, you know, orders of magnitude above the actual value of the thing that you're bringing in. Right. And so that I think is, is going to be the biggest impediment until, you know, some of these things kind of fail and then, and then maybe you see like aqua hires and stuff like that, that, that might happen when you know, people have kind of given up on the project and you're, you're bringing an engineering team in or, or something. I think that to me feels like the mm. first kind of wave of these things that might happen in the bear market, like teams that don't have runway, want, you know, some exit strategy, et cetera. But even then, I think if you were to go to the average project that maybe raised a few million dollars, you know, maybe has a $50 million market cap or whatever, and looked at it and said like, okay, we're supposed to buy this thing for $50 million, right? Like it just is nonsensical. Like, you know, no one believes that this thing is worth $50 million. Like it's just a speculative you know, um, premium that, that's not sustainable. And so then the only counter to that is, okay, but we also have a token and that token also has a speculative premium. And so what we're going to do is we're going to print more of those tokens and do like a token swap. And that can potentially work, but oftentimes, the project that's acquiring this you know, early stage project, there's like a, a dislocation in terms of like what that speculative premium is. And so it's, you know, like Aave turning up and being like, hey, I'm going to buy this protocol for a hundred million dollars. And it's like, wait, what are you buying? Right. Like, and I, like, I don't, I don't even need to name the protocol. You just say any protocol. It doesn't matter. Like it's not worth a hundred million dollars. There's no way. So you want to print a hundred million dollars with the Aave to go out and buy this thing. Like we can build it ourselves for that is the answer. I think that most communities would say. So yeah, it's, it's a challenge I think for M&A, unfortunately, just due to valuation uh, nonsense. So if M&A doesn't happen right now at the bottom, at what feels like maybe the bottom of the market or near the bottom, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's never happening. Yeah. Then this it doesn't is, happen. This is the, yeah. This is the time, right? Like, yeah. you know, you need peak fear, I think, um, to, to tamp down the, the speculative premium that you have for these smaller, smaller early stage projects. Yeah. I mean, there are aqua hires and, and that happens. And it does. sometimes for like really high, you know, um, who was that guy? It was the... Jeff Bezos guy, he's like, he had like a diaper company. Oh yeah. Mark, I know, Mark, yeah, Mark, yeah. Mark, it was like $2 billion or something like that. Yeah. $2 billion aqua hire or something. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that does happen even for, you know, spectacular teams. I think if you've got but enough scale. I don't think scale, that's really what we're talking about. No, I mean, it would not, yeah. but like if you've got enough scale, um, you know, and I mean, the whole point of, uh, of that company was like, it was built on holacracy or, you know, yeah. whatever. So like that, so even that is like, you, you pay $2 billion for holacracy. Like you could probably get a consultant to come in and, you know. Yeah help you with that but anyway i have a i had a this is um maybe you think this is relevant or interesting maybe you don't think it is but like that speculative premium being applied to tokens um you know there's something that's very different that happens like at a protocol the way that like your equity or token base is decided is like there's some tokens are more fungible than equity like if you consider equity a form of currency that you can buy certain things with you can really buy other companies or people right like human yeah. capital that's what you could spend that currency on um, so like when you're doing your cap table at the beginning of a company, you like divide it up and there's none left over, right? There's just like, okay, it's like the founders, the employees, and then like the investors, right? And then at each round, you like issue more equity, but with tokens, it's different. Like when you look at the initial token distribution, it's like, okay, this is for the founders, this is the devs, this is for the community. And this is just this chunk that's for nobody, but it's what we are going to use to like buy shit with. Mm. And it's just very, it's very different because that those tokens are like more fungible for you can't buy anything you couldn't go to like cvs and spend uh you know 
SNX. Not that I know. Uh, maybe, that, maybe that's in the cards. You for probably future, can. But like, Who knows? I, you might. Point, uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but like, you can accept more stuff. You you can buy more things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's it's much more common to accept payment in tokens. And I wonder if that has an impact. Um, so I think I've I've got a couple of thoughts there. I think you know I don't want to. Um, blame all of this on like the ERC-20 standard, right? But like there there was this idea of like, you only get to make a certain amount of tokens, right? Which is not true for equity. Mm-hmm. Equity has, the you know, like in a, in a business, you can print more tokens, right? Print more equity, right? And so you don't need to have this undifferentiated pool of value because people understand the concept that when you go out and do another round, you make more equity and then you sell it, right? And everyone else gets diluted. In crypto, people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where we do not accept solution. I want to yeah, scam exactly. Like I want to know how many tokens there are, and it can never change, right? And it realistically goes back to like Bitcoin days, right? Like this is a meme that came from like Bitcoin. Like there's a fixed supply. Yes, there's emissions, but like you can never print more Bitcoin. If you print more Bitcoin, the whole thing is just obliterated, right? And so like that like kind of pervasive thing like got kind of forked into the ERC-20 standard, right? Like it was it was included as a concept that, okay, it's day one, you're doing a project, how many tokens do you have? 100 million, a billion? And like, and we all know that's not, like, what does that even mean? Like, they're, it's, they're divisible to 18 decimal places. Like, you might as well have one, like, or like, it just doesn't matter, right? Unibias notwithstanding, we've learned that lesson, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, so I think like, that is the immediate reason why I think you have this weird idea of like, we have to have an undifferentiated pool because there's this meme of like, everyone wants to know how many tokens there will be for the rest of time until the heat death of the universe. And if there's one more token than that, I'm out, right? And so so like, you know, when synthetics went, okay, hey, everyone, we've got hundred million tokens, but actually we're going to create this inflationary supply and increase the supply. Like most people at that point, thankfully didn't care because like the FDV of synthetics was like $3 million and everyone was already out, right? Um, but if you tried to do something like that today, right, it would be very, very hard. I think you get a lot of pushback. So that I think that's the primary reason why we see that weird dynamic of like, you have to print extra equity, whatever. And like, even in theory, um, you know, uh, who is it? Um, AMC is going through this. Like there is a cap uh, on equity that can be Printed typically, right? The same like a corporate charter um, that requires token holder voting, right? To unlock. So, like, even then, I think there's like a fixed supply ish, but it can be changed or whatever, but it's just not as strong of a meme. So, that's the first thing. Second thing I think is most equity doesn't trade on public liquid markets, right? So, it's not as fungible right. with dollars as, you know, so as soon as you have every single shit coin is, has a Uniswap pool. Well, it feels much more like a dollar than, you know, some early stage startup will just raise a seed round. Like who's out there buying the equity? Like it just doesn't happen. Yeah. I think a lot of it actually comes down to that, the early stage liquidity, because mm-hmm. it actually kind of flips in your head. Like one thing that I've noticed that is like totally backwards in crypto, and I um, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it, is um, this idea that you should like get rewarded for being first and that reward should continue to like accrue to you disproportionately, which is like the opposite in equity, right? You start with this like small pool that like nobody cares about and then you kind of grow it and like you're okay with like diluting yourself because you have a smaller part of a much bigger pie. And I've noticed that that's like totally flipped in crypto. And it's like, well, I was your first. So like, what are you going to give me for exactly. sticking around? Yeah. And I've got 10,000 so- Bitcoins and like that, um, you can pry them out of my cold dead hands, right? Like that's it. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting. And I wonder if like part of that is the liquidity 
uh, at such an early stage because, you know, one thing that I've heard, which just literally makes me laugh is like, well, you don't want to get front run by the DAO, you know, issuing more tokens. And it's like, that is so <laughs> backwards. Yeah. That is so backwards. Yeah. Uh, you know, so. Look, I, I think but. there's a lot of things, you know, everything on some level is path dependent, right? And so weird, dumb decisions that were made by early crypto participants, like even going all the way back to like 2009, like weird, dumb stuff that happened in Bitcoin, just arbitrarily, like some arbitrary decision that was made you know, maybe Satoshi woke up and didn't have a coffee that morning and was like, you know, I'm going to write this instead of that. Right. And like that, like one decision, like sends you off on this like tangent that like no one can anticipate what the impact of that would be 12 years later, 13 years later. Right. But like there is still the ability, like nothing is like purely path dependent. Right. You can still find your way back to the other reality. You know, it just might take time. Right. And so, you know, I, I think that as the market becomes more efficient, as experimentation happens, things that are more efficient will do better, right? And, you know, more participants means more experimentation, which means like, oh, now we're doing this experiment where we don't have a fixed supply. Like Synthetics was one of the first to do this, right? We were like, we're not gonna have a fixed supply token, we're gonna have inflation, we're about to shut off inflation, but that's a different story. I know. Um, <laughs> you know, so, uh, well, I say that, I'm about to propose it. Um, they'll probably tell me to- um, to uh, Shove it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. <laughs> You're too benevolent. That's the I, thing. Know, um, I know. Yeah. <laughs> what can I've got? What's the reason for that? Can you like just what's the reason for shutting off in, uh, inflation? And like, what are the maybe talking about the yeah. path dependencies? Like, what are the second order impacts of of shutting off inflation? So one of the fun things about synthetics is we understand. I think as a community, and and you know, this uh, I think there were a lot of early people that found their way to synthetics that just liked the way that. The, the early community thought about things is like, you know, we're in a lower information environment, right? So you can sit there and you can speculate about what the impact of anything is going to be, but nothing is as good as like empirical evidence, right? So let's do the thing, ideally in a small scale, right? And we try not to like walk through one-way doors, but like do it at a small scale and see if you die, right? Like eat like a tiny little bit of that like mushroom and like see if you live or, you know, whatever, right? Um, you know, and if it's like super poisonous, you probably die, but you accept that's like the risk of life, right? Um, and and so, you know, I think that this, this idea of like shutting off inflation, people within the synthetics community and the overall synthetics community is like very open to experimentation. And we're coming up on this like very meme-like number, which is what kind of triggered it for me. You know, there's 300 million tokens about to be issued. I think we're at like 292 or something like that, right? So there's 8 million tokens left. We started off with 100 million. Then we changed the inflationary schedule and, you know, we've gone back and forth and had more or less inflation, whatever. But 300, you know, the Spartans, et cetera, like there's this meme thing about like somehow we ended up with 300 million tokens, which no one expected. And here we are, right? And the reality is, why can we do it today versus six months ago? Because we actually have fee revenue accruing now for the first time. So we could maybe get away with it. Is it too early? Maybe, right? But, you know, synthetics and the synthetics community has never kind of shied away from doing things that are a bit high risk. Like, in worst case, it is too early and there's, you know, some issue, whatever, then, you know, we can fix that problem, right? It's, it's not an unfixable problem. Do you think, and I want to, I, I know I want to, I've got a, Jason, I have a bunch of questions for you specifically on synthetics. I know sure. you've got a big upgrade that's, that's coming down the pike, but I, I got two more questions before we just uh, move on there. Um, you, do you think there's kind of like a game theory thing here in terms of shutting off 
rewards kind of for inflation because if you there was a you know a proposal that almost passed with compound right and to your point right they kicked off uh yield farming right in mm-hmm. DeFi summer and there was a proposal that got really really close right to shut off rewards and to your point about path dependency i'm like maybe if they had shut it off it would have been like well if, if compound shut it off i can shut it off do you think it's just like a game musical chairs and we're just waiting to be like i right, finally we can shut these things off yeah like you know the overton window of, of what's acceptable in crypto is typically very small right? Um, because it's mm. still a very small community. And so it takes some crazy person doing some crazy thing, right? To, to kind of open that up, right? And say like, oh, this is a thing that we can do now, right? And, and I think the reason, particularly if you go back and look at like some of the things that were done and some of the like mimetic rules that, that you know, kind of, you know, and dogmatic things that kind of emerged in the ICO mania was that like in an ICO, you had like a six week window from like announcing your thing to like raising all the money, right? It was insane. Like mm-hmm. there's like nothing the world has ever seen, right? And so if you made one wrong move, you went from, you know, this reality where you could raise, you know, millions or tens of millions of dollars or billions of dollars in, in the case of some projects to nothing. Right. It was a very binary outcome. Like you, you set one foot wrong and it's over. Right. The community would abandon you and go move on to the next thing because it was just this rapid fire cycle. Right. And so that created this very like rigid view of what is acceptable because, you know, you would have a conversation with an investor and they'd be like, okay, so what are you doing with this? And they'd be like, we're doing this. And they'd be like, I'm out. And that was it. Like it was done. It was not like a conversation. It was just like, sorry, I got to call in 15 minutes for the next you know, crazy scheme. Right. Um, and so people were kind of forced into this kind of uh, view of, okay, we have to do these things. Um, but then I think, you know, over and, and DeFi summer was similar, right? Like if you wanted a yield farm and you wanted people to go into it, like you needed to use staking rewards.sol. If you wrote your own contract, even if it was better, People would be like, whoa, 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 I don't trust this. And they would go on to the next thing, right? So like when things are moving quickly, you know, people kind of, you know, hew to whatever is like the accepted, you know, approach to things. Um, And I I do think that that has constrained our ability to like experiment and iterate and and test things. Um, But during bear markets, the pressure is kind of there to do things, right? Like you kind of have to try new things. So I think during bear markets, you get a lot more experimentation. Whereas in a bull market, it's just about do the thing that everyone expects you to do as quickly as possible and take advantage of, you know, this crazy market momentum. I've got one more question about fees um, before we close this topic. Um, one thing that I've noticed and maybe push back on a little bit um, is I think there's a difference between to what you were saying, like proving that a protocol can earn fees, right? And that there's actual value and it's not just based on you know, inflationaries are like just give, giving out rewards versus actually returning capital to token holders. And I've noticed that people are like mixing those two concepts up, right? Like to your point, right? In the beginning, you like subsidize your growth, like do whatever you got to do to like get yourself on the map. Then you have to prove like a provable revenue strategy and the ability to generate profit. You probably don't have to extract it yet, uh, but you have to prove that you like can do it. And then eventually, right? This is like the life cycle of a company. Then you return capital to shareholders or in our case, token holders. And I've noticed that people are like conflating these two things. Like, yes, like earn fees so you can give me the token holder back the reward. And I'm like, that is not, I don't just, I just don't think that that's what should be happening at this early stage, right? You should be like protocols, right? It should be taking that revenue and putting it in some form of treasury and like reinvesting it. This is a, this is a capital compounding problem, not a, you know, juiced returns problem. What do you think about that 
Like I think, crypto. again, that's kind of another meme, right? Of like, uh, you know, there's a lot of entitlement in crypto, right? And so the entitlement is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, why would I allow money that could go to me to go to someone else? Like, that's not okay, yeah. right? And so like, there's this like very uh, kind of uh, a rigid view of like, no, you know, what could Uniswap have to do with? And also, I think a lot of people look at large treasuries and they say, why would I give, you know, that multi-billion dollar DAO treasury more money when I could have it, right? Like that's the other the other side of the coin as well, I think. Um, and I think the final thing of maybe where this emerged from was the idea that like DAOs don't need money. They're efficient, right? They're autonomous. Like why would a DAO need money? Why do they need a treasury? Like why do they need to do things, right? Like the early days of like pure DAOist like view was like, it's just going to be some code that runs and like people will kind of be hanging around looking at it, but like no one needs to do anything. Right. And I think we've realized that that's actually not the case. Um, so I think there is a tension there between people selfishly wanting the yield as soon as possible. Right. Like, oh, there's fees. I want those fees. I'm a token holder. I've got, you know, a hundredth of a percent of the supply. I want a hundredth of a percent of the fees generated today. Right. Um, but to your point, you know, is that the best idea? Um, you know, that's why we have governments, I guess. Right. To like yeah. debate these things. Right. Sorry, I know I said this was the last question. Fees. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do you think fees end up getting implemented? Because, right, there's this very rich history in TradVi of like people not liking to pay fees that are upfront. Mm. So, what they do is like everyone's still got to make their money. So, they put it in the background, right? Like, probably the most relevant part of this discussion is like MEV. Um, but I, I'd be curious to like get your sense of like how you view that happening. Uh, right. Like, like, do you think people are just going to be okay with paying fees or they're going to be like, Hey, we demand lower fees. And then you say, okay, well, Hey, we'll, we'll take down your trading fees or whatever it is, but like, we'll find this other kind of sneaky way. Like, how do you see fees getting implemented? Yeah. I mean, you know, payment for order flow is probably the, the best example, this, <laughs> right. right? Like, okay, you can yeah. trade for free, but you know, and I mean, Matt Levine from Bloomberg has talked about this, like, you know, a million times, right. That like, actually that is better for everyone, right. It is a better uh, situation, but it just feels like there's something like to your point, like sneaky thing going on in the background, right? Um, you know, it just feels like, oh, this doesn't look good. But the reality is that like uninformed order flow is valuable, right? Like that's a valuable thing, right? Like, you know, because, um, and synthetics has struggled with this, right? Like this is actually, you asked about the, the direct integration um, SIP, right? And why we're doing that. The direct integration SIP is kind of the equivalent of payment for order flow, right? It's like the DeFi equivalent of that. So we're basically saying to Curve, we want your order flow, right? We know that it's uninformed arbitrage, right? We know that there it's you know undifferentiated people trading through you know Curve and they're doing something else, and we're just facilitating that. It's not someone who is sitting on Binance, you know, trying to manipulate an Oracle update by like dumping the price and then you know like it's not like it's not someone or it's not someone who knows that you know a token is about to collapse because there's been some kind of you know hack or something like that and, and it's trying to like take advantage of it typically it's it's you know 99 percent of it is just uninformed arbitrage flow right moving between exchanges and amms and all kinds of stuff so we want that flow so how do we pay for that order flow we pay for it with lower fees and we say we're going to build a direct integration into curve and give you lower fees if you accommodate this new route right and and you know that is a, a really good way of kind of generating uh, more volume because it's valuable to us to have uninformed order flow right and, and you know um, mm. not have like adverse selection 
Jason's never going to invite me back on this podcast again if I keep. No, like Kane, I've been spending a lot of uh, a lot of time in like the maker with Maker and like just read like think about like Hasu and like you know his his proposal and and Rune and like his end game and I actually do want to get your take on what's going on with Maker, but not yet. I want to get your. Okay. I'd love to just hear like. What is your end game for synthetics? Like, what are you? Mm. What is what is the vision for synthetics? I think what, my vision versus like what the vision is, um, you know, sometimes gets conflated, right? Like, it, it is. I want to. I want to hear. I want to hear your vision, not yeah, the communities, so, not the forums. Yeah. Your vision. Yeah. So I think my vision is I want synthetics to be the thing that I've always wanted for synthetics is to be self-sustaining, right? So that means that you know we need to get to a point where the volume and transaction activity that's happening is sustainable, right? That we don't have adverse selection. We don't have the risk of front running and you know, all of that stuff. And so the vast majority of the work of synthetics over the last like three years has been like front running mitigation, right? Like adverse selection mitigation and, and trying to prevent people attacking the exchange, right? Because you've got this open system that, you know, anyone can come uh, and, and trade against. And so people are constantly attacking it, right? And we've gotten more and more sophisticated at kind of preventing those sorts of attacks and, and you're trying to, to minimize the damage of them. Um, but right now it's still like an arms race that is ongoing, right? And so you can't just say like, oh, the contracts are there, see you later, right? Like within six months, someone would develop some new scheme to like try and extract value from the contracts that would be significantly bad. You know, like it would, it would be, very detrimental, right? I would imagine. Um, over time, obviously, that risk goes down because we've, you know, we've kind of like, but we've chipped away at the the advantage. But like that is a, just a very real thing that is ongoing with synthetics. So until we get to a point where we're like, okay, this feels like we've got a long term solution that is sustainable, like a, a sustainable equilibrium, then we, we, you have to keep working on it, right? So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is to get to a point where the community and um, you know, particularly stakers are sufficiently incentivized to continue to like maintain the protocol, right? That like, you know, it's generating fees, it's working. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, kind of um, distributed parties that have a, a significant incentive in, in keeping the thing alive, right? At the moment, you know, they're, I think if you, if you kind of switched off the, the efforts of the core contributors, let's say, right? Um, and the DAO stopped paying them, you know, would people turn up and do things? Like, are the incentives aligned for them to kind of continue to do things? Um, probably not. At a certain point, though, when the yield is high enough from, you know, fees and, and transactions, and when the risk-adjusted, you know, adverse selection issues are dealt with, people, I think, would just continue to work on it because they're making money from it. And, you know, it becomes more like a genuine open source project. Right, where like there's people who are reliant on on you know it as a service and will will contribute to it. So for me, that's my vision is like to get to a point where like across all dimensions that it's sustainable. Um, and you know, it's never I, I I don't believe in this idea of like it just gets to like a stable point and then it stops, right? And then like the contracts are done, and you know, I think there's always going to be ongoing maintenance. But the key is to make sure that that ongoing maintenance is properly incentivized long-term so you don't need to keep pushing it to, to keep that maintenance and, and keep the, the momentum going. There's an interesting dichotomy between like, 
I hate the term web two and web three actually, but I will, I will use it here, which is like web two founders and web three founders, which is what's, what's the end state for web two founders? It's like, I want to IPO or I want to get a big exit. And like, when you talk to a lot of web three, like, I don't know, crypto native founders, oftentimes the end state, the end game, the end goal is self-sustaining. What, why do you think that is like, why, why is that your end state? Because if you look at a Web2 founder, most of the time they've created some, you know, multi-tier equity structure where they retain control, um, you know, them and their descendants retain control of this thing in perpetuity, right? And realistically, that's not sustainable. And I think Web3 people fundamentally believe, like, at some point I will die. some point in the future I will die, right? So if synthetics is reliant on me being alive, that is not sustainable. Right. And that's a very like philosophical way to to approach the problem. But like if we don't have the right incentives in place such that someone steps up uh, or, you know, ideally a lot of people step up to continue to maintain this project and and, maintain its value and and, continue to push it forward in absence of me being here, then it's not really sustainable. Like, you know, we've seen this happen in a lot of Web2 companies, you know, the founder leader leaves and the thing falls over because it was never really sustainable. It just was relying on the efforts of that one person to keep pushing it forward. Um, so so I, I think that is one of the reasons why. Like a lot of us are, you know, a lot of the early crypto people are, you know, very like crypto anarchist and and you know believe that you should have like distributed control and you shouldn't have like a single hierarchical, you know, tree of decision making, etc. And so in that environment, the only way that you can have something that's sustainable is you have the right incentives to like keep the thing going long term in absence of right. this founder leader, you know, idea. Long term to become self-sustaining, you obviously have to be set up as a DAO. But I'm curious if if do you think you would be more or less successful, like up until this point, if you were not set up as a DAO? If you were just a centralized company, you were the CEO, you could execute really quickly, you could hire the people that you wanted to hire, you could ship the products that you wanted to ship, would you be more or less successful up until this point if you were not a DAO? Far, far less successful. And this is the thing that people miss, right? Um, who is perpetuating this myth of these magical geniuses that know everything, that have like this game plan or whatever, right? Fucking VCs <laughs> and the people themselves, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it, it like there is no such thing as like this magical per like okay, Vitalik notwithstanding, right? Like, and even Vitalik isn't sitting there saying like do everything that I say, right? Most of the thing that things that Vitalik says tend to be pretty right, like over a long enough time horizon. But like, you know, I guarantee you that even Vitalik short term has like I mean we know that, right? Like Vitalik got up there, you know multiple times and told us like some new thing was going to be the best thing ever. And if he had had like unilateral control to like push forward every single change and the community just accepted every single thing and there was no pushback from engineers or whatever, we would have gone down a very different path and probably would be much further away from the scaling goals that, you know, we, we have for Ethereum, right? The same is true for every single project and every, you know, if literally we listen to everything that Rune said, like, I love Rune, but like, he has some dumb ideas sometimes, right? Like, and so do I, like, so you need checks and balances, right? And I think what we have in a Web2 company in terms of checks and balances is very weak, right? Um, And, you know, so we have this survivorship bias where, you know, you have a whole bunch of companies with single leaders, very hierarchical, and like 10 of them survive. And we go, oh my God, look at these 10 magical creatures that have come down to like save us from ourselves or whatever, right? But like the other thousand that made separate random dumb decisions and died, we don't care about that, right? So when we look at Web3 and and think, okay, how do we 
not fall prey to this idea of like a magical leader that knows everything, you know, omnipotent or whatever. The answer is like you put structures in place to make sure that governance is, is much more decentralized. And the reality is that decentralized decision making, while it might be slower, is much more effective. Like that is unequivocal for me. Like I think DAOs and genuinely decentralized DAOs will outcompete other organizations and other forms of coordination over the next like 10 to 20 years. And in hindsight, we'll look back and be like, wow, that was so obvious. Like who thought that like Adam Newman was the fucking guy that we should be giving, you know, billions? Like why are we giving that guy unilateral control over like tens of billions of dollars, right? Like, no, like it's just dumb, right? It's dumb and it's a meme that has been perpetuated by VCs and, and the founders themselves. Yeah. Do you think, do you think this will be the case for all companies, like all companies, like you think DAOs will eventually in all industries get bigger than centralized companies or you think it's specific to DeFi? I think, you know, human coordination is human coordination, right? And like, you know, corporations as a form of coordination have had a very good run, right? But everything evolves. And, and, you know, when you look back 50 years and look forward 50 years, reality looks very different oftentimes, right? Like, you know, as, as we kind of progress. Um, and so I think that the idea that you have this new coordination mechanism, right, that exists, this new technology is not going to transform how we coordinate ourselves is, is very crazy to me, right? Like, obviously it will. In the same way that like people are like, oh, you know, the internet, it's interesting, but I don't think it's going to have a huge impact on anyone's lives, right? Like there are a lot of people who, because they just don't have the like vision to like, you know, and it's not like you are sitting there saying, I know exactly how this is going to play out. Like I know how the internet in, you know, 1990 is going to play out in 20, no one knows. Right. But like, you can sit there and say, I don't know, but I know that it's going to be fucking weird and stuff's going to happen. Right. And I think that that's the same thing for crypto. Like, I don't know if DAOs are going to look like what they look like today. It would be weird if they did, but there's no question that this technology is going to unseat the kind of technology that we have in place today. Uh, Kane, our analysts are going to kill us if we don't ask you at least some technical questions about the V3 upgrade, right? Sure. So yeah. some of the features, they're gonna, literally going to get murdered. Uh, so some of the features there are multi-collateral staking, customizable debt positions, permissionless sense. So maybe if you want to touch on some of those, but like just from a high level, like what is V3? What are some of the big changes that uh, folks should be expecting? Yeah, so I think V3 is our chance to rebuild the protocol from scratch taking into account all of the things that we have learned of the last, you know, four and a half, five years. Right. Um, and so, you know, there, like, and even there were just things that were not even contemplated, right. Like, uh, from like a technical perspective, right. This idea of like continuous time functions, like we, you know, they existed, but there were no implementations in Solidity back then. Right. And even like proxy architecture and like all of there's so many things where we just had to cobble together some, solution to make it work at the time, you know, back in 2018 or you know, even earlier in, in the case of some of the like Haven code. Um, and so we've learned a whole bunch of things and the industry has gotten much more sophisticated. There's, you know, a lot more uh, kind of, you know, design and, and you know, mechanism um, work that's happened. Um, and we have kind of looked at all of the functional components. So synthetics requires, you know, claiming of fees. Okay, great. So back in the day, we were like, what if you claim the fees once a week and you have to do this weird convoluted thing and it's super expensive, whatever. And now today, like we have a mechanism for claiming fees that, you know, in continuous time that like most protocols use. And it's just the understood way to do this thing. Right. But we can't 
slice out that little bit of code and replace it because you know the overall thing is, is just so complex right so we basically said okay let's take all of the functional components look at what the you know state of the art is in terms of how you implement them today on chain and design a system around those components so it's doing the same thing in just a much more effective way basically um, and then there's some things where we're like that was a dumb idea let's remove it and replace it with a better idea what do, what do you think about, uh, so one of the the things that I think you have to keep in mind, right, especially as a, as a DeFi founder today, right, is regulation, especially US-based regulation. Be curious, um, you know, to get your thought on like for synths, do you uh, like expect to just be able to, because one of the things that I think you're introducing as well is like permissionless synths. So, you know, the ability to create something like an equity, right, like an instrument that mimics like Tesla stock or Apple or something like that, I think US regulators have been not super kindly predisposed to. So yeah. like, I'd be, I'd be curious to get your thoughts thoughts about like about just that whole interaction yeah i mean you know i think if you go back three weeks ago or whatever right um most DeFi founders would say that like we weren't in an environment where something like ofac sanctions were were super likely right you know or even like some other regulatory body like really like bringing the hammer down right it's one thing to like you know, go after some fraudulent actors and you know, punish them and make them disgorge profits or, or whatever. Um, but we hadn't really seen like a lot of aggressive uh, behavior towards what I would call like good actors in the space, right? Like people that were like genuinely, you know, trying to build things that had value for, uh, for their communities and, and society. I think that has shifted a little bit. Right. So previously I would have been like, well, you know, synthetics is sufficiently decentralized that, um, even if a regulator might not like the idea of synthetic equities, if the community decides to deploy a permissionless contract to do it, right, that's fine. Um, but I would say today the, the kind of uh, trade-off space there has shifted a little bit, right, where I would say, like, probably you shouldn't do that, right? Like, the community probably shouldn't do that. Now, okay, you create permissionless sense, right, and same whether you create, like, permissionless Uniswap pools and you can't really stop people, but what that's forced Uniswap to do as like uniform labs, I guess, right? Like probably is like blacklist a bunch of assets, right? And, and you know, remove them from front ends and things like that. So that's not something that synthetics as a community has typically done. Um, but I just think we need to be much more mindful, um, you know, given the current environment than, than we were. Um, so I, I think you would have a hard time convincing the council, you know, who are ultimately the representatives of token holders, right? I think you'd have a hard time convincing them to, uh, create, you know, synthetic equities. How about, um, I know another idea that you've talked a lot about, right, is uh, liquidity as a service. Can you walk through, walk us through like what that means for you specifically? Yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are trying to experiment with this, right? Um, you know, they're like protocol owned liquidity and, and you know, uh, right. different, different things like that. Um, and so I think, you know, we... Unfortunately, a lot of the projects that were experimenting with that stuff tacked on weird Ponzi's, which, um, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, created like a little bit of like a, a weird sense for people that like maybe it was not like as legitimate, um, you know, of an idea. Um, but I think that, um, you know, the the reality is that like liquidity is one of the most critical things in DeFi, right? Um, and so if you can... Uh, facilitate more efficient trading, uh, people will pay for that. And we're seeing that with like atomic swaps, right? So like synthetics is this like liquidity as a service that is 
injected into the middle of like an arbitrage trade, right? It just makes that trade more efficient, right? And people are willing to pay for that because they get a better fill, et cetera. You know, it's kind of like that payment for order flow stuff that we're, we're talking about as well. Um, so I, I do think that like a lot of what we're doing in DeFi is just about provisioning liquidity, right? And then the question is like, how do you pay for it? And who, who pays for it? Who benefits, et cetera? Um, I have a just you know whenever you're looking at something that's as complicated as provisioning liquidity, except I it, I think it would be an interesting exercise for listeners to like if you had to sum that up and describe synthetics in one sentence for your business model, how would you do that? Because I've thought about this for Blockworks too. And yeah, I have yeah. I, I like you know this is not the first time that I've uh, that I've been presented uh, like even like you know in the community right like people yeah. turn up and they're like what do we do and I'm like I don't know like we do a bunch of random stuff right uh, so like you know inspiring I, yeah exactly I know right um, like I think ultimately like synthetics is and I've said this I've said this before many times right synthetics is less about being a specific solution to a specific problem as it is like a generalized like solution machine if that makes sense right like what what we're you know we see opportunities and we try and solve whatever the challenges are for like taking advantage of those opportunities so like atomic swaps is a good example of that right like that was not part of the core synthetics you know mission right like it was really like we wanted to build an exchange where you could trade synthetic derivatives of things, whatever. And then just the market shifted, AMMs became a big deal, curve and stable swaps and all that stuff became a big deal. And we just saw this market opportunity where like, wait, you know, if you have two pools that are you know super liquid, but are disconnected, right? Um, and siloed, if you could bridge those two pools, you could, you know, capture a lot of value, right? And so, you know, Literally, we went out and tried to solve that. And we would still, you know, it's taken, we had like a bunch of smart people, Andre and Anton from One Inch, and, you know, uh, a bunch of people trying to solve this thing, right? Um, and, you know, it turns out it's a really hard problem to solve, to do it in a way that's like not front runnable and not exploitable. Um, so, I, I, again, I, I kind of think like synthetics is about just trying to solve hard problems, not about like any specific solution. Um, I guess just the last, the last question, uh, this also comes from, <laughs> comes from our analyst, uh, you kind of talked about it with the decision, uh, to go off the inflationary schedule. Um, and the way you maybe describe that is like, not to put words in your mouth, but it's maybe it's not a bet the kitchen sink type thing, but it's like definitely a very important decision that I'm sure you've chewed over quite a bit. Um, can you just, again, kind of like sum up for us, like what is the reasoning behind moving off the inflationary model? Like what are some of the risks that you see in your mind mm-hmm. and what do you hope to gain? Right? Like when you come out of the other side, like not being dependent on that, what's the, you know, other than the 300 meme, which I'm sure you can rip like great uh, Leonidas memes uh, all day long, but like, what's the, what's Valhalla? So I, you know, we actually, and this got less attention, but we actually tried the alternative, right? We actually tried yeah. to, to increase the inflation rate, right? To see if it would have an impact on staking. Um, and, and, you know, I, I had this idea that like, if you increased inflation significantly, you would get a higher staking rate. Now, staking in synthetics is, is kind of critical, um, particularly in, in V2X and the current system. In V3, it's less critical, but in V2X, it's critical that people stake SNX to provide liquidity. And we were, you know, pretty regularly trading above peg, right? We're having a hard time, like, getting enough sense into the circulation to, to kind of you know, meet demand, right? And so the idea was, well, you know, we're only seeing about 65% of SNX staked, right? Back at its peak, you know, in 2019, it was like 
85 or 90 percent, something like that, right? And that was with a higher inflation rate. So we're like, okay, fee yield is not sufficient right now. What if we increase the inflation rate? And we did, and really didn't move. Now, my argument was we didn't give it enough time, right? And that, like, you know, maybe, <laughs> which is my, uh, that's always my argument, right? That, like, you just need more time. But, like, you know, maybe after six months or 12 months of higher inflation, maybe it would have moved the dial. But at a certain point, you need to say, well, look, we've experimented with this and it didn't work, right? So we, we you know, um, started decreasing the inflation rate uh, about, like, five or six weeks ago or whatever um, in response to the fact that, like, this number that we we're trying to get in like staking percentage just didn't move right and so my theory is well okay we tried it in that direction let's try it in the other direction like if if incentives from staking are not um you know like the, the inflation uh inflationary rewards are not sufficient to move the dial what if we remove it will people keep staking um and if staking rates drop then i think we'll need to like assess that but you know if we end up in a place where like 50 percent of snx is still staked just for the fee yield and people have an expectation like future fee yield will go up, then like theoretically that should create like a positive cycle because you've got less, you know, uh, SNX kind of being printed every week. And there's a lot of people I think out there who sell their inflation, right? So it is, it is you know, even though inflation is locked, there's a lot of people with unlocked SNX that can, you know, okay, I've got a hundred SNX, well, I'm going to sell, I'm going to go and hedge my exposure for that year by selling hundred S spot SNX today, right? And so you remove that constant selling pressure, even if it's only, 20% of inflation or whatever that's that's being sold every week, you remove that. And I think that that will have a positive feedback loop in terms of, you know, kind of price discovery and, and realigning things. So that's that's the overall reasoning, but also the 300 meme. <laughs> also, think Always do it for the meme. Yeah, exactly. Um, Ken, I want to think about wrapping just with a more with that, uh, two topics that are not related to synthetics. One is I want to get your take on Maker and like Hasu and, and Rune and just everything that's happening there. Uh, the other is I want to get your take on protocol specific stables like Ave rolling out stables. I'm yeah. curious. Yeah, I mean, you can start. Where where, where do you want to start? Uh, look, let me address the stable point thing first. Right, yeah. like you know, this go this speaks I think to um, to Michael's point earlier about like returning money to investors versus like reinvesting it. Right, like is Ave whatever Ave is right the best thing that Aave token holders could be giving capital to, like the best entity, the best, you know, whatever um, thing to be investing in, right? Like, because you get to a point where people are building empires, right? They're like, oh, stable points sound fun. Like, why don't we do that, right? Or maybe we'll build a social network or whatever, right? So if you are giving money, like, yes, Stanley is amazing. And yes, the Aave community is amazing. They've done an incredible job over the last five years, but like, Am I giving them my marginal dollar to go and build something because I think that's a great idea? Like that's not how we solve investment, right? Like we find a small team that's got a very you know clear idea of what they want to do, and we give them the money and say go out and do this thing, right, and focus on it. So in that sense, like returning funds to token holders so that you don't have this giant pool of capital where you're like, oh, what are we doing today? I guess we're gonna, you know, yeah. whatever, right? So that that's what I, I worry. And I, you know, the second thing is I think people think step. People have forgotten that stable coins are hard. Like, and you know, this, this speaks to Maker, right? Like, why did they forget this? Because Maker just jammed a bunch of USDC into like a wrapper contract and called it a day, right? Like, I, you know, and I say that like in the meanest possible way because I've been against this the entire time. But like, it made people have this false sense of like, oh, it's not that hard to have a decentralized stable coin. But you know, 
UST, like look, like look at the you know the counterpoint, right? Like it's really hard to build a stablecoin that is sustainable. It doesn't matter how much capital you have. I, I would um we were doing a um an analyst call like our QT analyst call and uh, there was a prominent uh, like Fin Twitter listening and he he DM me and he said they were talking about the the central like these stable coins like Go and the Curve one and he was like do you do you realize that your analysts are just describing private banknotes yeah. and I had to sit and think about that and I was like shit that is literally exactly right from like the Wildcat banking days it's like yeah. each bank would be like hey what do I have I have this. Uh, there's a whole bunch of assets here. Yeah. I can issue a dollar against them. I can do my own little private uh, fractional reserve banking system, and like that worked horrendously. So yeah, I, well, it's you know it's funny. Yeah. Like I, um, I I try to reread this like once a year. Um, Hayek's denationalization of money, right? Um, where he he talks about this idea of like being able to like issue you know your own currency, right? Like having like a market driven version of currency rather than like having it like be centralized into a central bank or whatever um and i think the interesting thing about it is that like he didn't contemplate the technology so like obviously he was like well the only entity that could do that would be a bank right like but now actually no like we have the technology that anyone can print their own money and it is a much more like market driven thing the problem is that like not everyone should print their own money right and in even more importantly it's one thing for Aave to print Aave tokens, right? As like a form of equity and, and use them to you know, create incentives or whatever. It's another thing for Aave to like create their own dollars, right? Like that's like a, a different thing. So, you know, um, again, I think people underestimate how hard it is to, to manage a stable coin. In the same way, you know, and again, like I love Aave, but like I think Aave has already come to this conclusion that synthetics came to, you know, a long time ago, which is like, it's also really hard to be on like 55 different fucking networks. Right. Like, you know, if you go and deploy your code, even if it's just like, oh, we're going to dump it, like it's not as simple as just deploy the code and walk away. Like you have to maintain it. You have to deal with the people who are using it. Like it's really hard. Like and, you know, oftentimes each marginal network is is going to be net negative for the protocol. It's going to be a distraction. And, and you know, so that you're already seeing them like pull up some of those deployments and be like, actually, we're going to shut this thing down. It's yeah. not worth it. So, but it's good experimentation. Someone needs to do that experiment. Thankfully, Ave did it for us. And they've told us that maybe it's a bad idea to deploy into every possible EVM compatible chain as quickly as possible. Um, but to come back to the maker question, um, I actually spoke to Rune uh, for the first time um, in, a, in a little while um, last week. And, you know, I think everyone was caught by surprise by this tornado cash thing, right? Like, you know, okay, we sit here and, you know, we, we talk about all this cypherpunk stuff and, you know, uh, anti-status stuff and um, censorship resistance, whatever. Um, I really don't think in the same way that like everyone was a bit caught by surprise by like the aggressiveness of the SEC, you know, over the last 18 months. I think we all kind of thought we had a bit more time before like we genuinely had state actors coming after us, right? Um, and I think that that was Maker's thesis, realistically, right? They're like, oh, this is not gonna be a problem. Like, USDC is fine, you know, it's not like an existential threat, et cetera. And now I think we're seeing that like, actually it is, right? Like they have the ability to block token addresses. They are not just willing to do it, but like they're eager to do it, right? And with the right incentives, you like, you know, Circle is eager to, like they will over comply. Right. Like OFAC didn't come to them and be like, hey, go and block all these addresses as far as we know. Right. They looked at it and said, what is the biggest de-risking thing that we can do? Block everything. 
right? And just like shut down those addresses. And the idea of like stranding end user funds, right? And, and like not insignificant amounts of money in these contracts as like a, an overcompliance thing is like petrifying to maker as well it should be, right? Like, you know, all like what is the threshold that would get some entity, you know, like doesn't have to be OFAC, could be, you know, some entity in Europe or like who knows, right? It could be anything, but like we don't know what the reaction of Circle would be. I mean, you know, making a call to block the maker addresses as a compliance measure would be pretty huge, right? Because it would almost invalidate USDC as like a stable coin, right? So that would be an existential threat. So it's definitely a level above Tornado Cash, but like, do we want to play that game, right? So I think that the reality is the maker community um, made a bad call a long time ago about how to scale DAI by just dumping a bunch of USDC in there. They thought that they would have more time to get themselves out of this mess and, and figure it out. But I think, you know, unfortunately they're out of time and they're going to have to make some hard decisions about what the path forward is. So if you were the benevolent, if you were the full dictator of maker, what are, what are you doing? <laughs> If I look, if I was a full dictator of Maker, there never would have been any USDC in Dai, right? But knowing and, that there is, knowing, knowing right, that there is, knowing that there is, if they said to me today, "Hey, come and, and be the dictator of, of Maker," um, I would absolutely shut down all paths going towards real world assets. Real world assets are not the solution here, right? Like, and I've been against them since when they were first proposed in like 2018, right? Like this idea of we're going to put, you know, treasuries and all kinds of stuff in there. Um, so like, I just think it's just a bad idea. Um, mm. you, as soon as you attach something to the, you know, real world, like a, a smart contract to the real world and are reliant on it, that is a, a, you know, a pressure point that, uh, anyone can leverage against you. Right. And, and your ability to maintain censorship resistance and, um, you know, uh, uh avoid regulatory pressure, et cetera, just is gone. Right. It's the same reason why I advocate yeah. for DAOs to not have entities. Right. As soon as you've got an entity, even if it's like a Cayman's foundation or a Swiss foundation or whatever, as soon as you have one entity that has some control over the protocol, that is a pressure point that people can leverage to, uh, to try and you know, uh, impact the protocol. So your perfect collateral, like you think the collateral of DAI should just be Bitcoin and ETH? I mean, this is the problem, right? Like that's right. not the solution. Yeah. Like we've seen yeah. that, right? Like that doesn't work, right? Yeah. Okay. So is there another solution? And I like my argument at the time when this was happening was maybe you threw up your hands a little too soon, right? Yeah. Like synthetics has dealt with all kinds of issues of you know supply constraints or whatever. And we've chosen ideologically to not deal with those supply constraints by using USDC. We could have, like synthetics would probably have like two or $3 billion worth of supply, right? If we had decided a year ago or 18 months ago to just dump USDC and like no question, right? Like it makes sense. Like SUSD is used to farm a bunch of things. People want more of it. Like USDC would have just, you know, flowed in and like the majority of, uh, of since would be backed by USDC right now, if we'd make that call, like I, I, I think that's pretty yeah. obvious. So yeah, that, that's my, that's my view is that like, it's, it's fruit from the poison tree. As soon as you take that first buy game over, yeah. because it's going to be hard to wean yourself off it. Kane, this is actually been, one of the biggest. Yeah, yeah, yeah you get. Now, I was gonna, now, I was gonna wrap. Kane, I know it's been an hour. Yeah, you wrap. I think we could do yeah. this for three more hours, but this is, yeah. Thanks for uh, waking up early and doing this with us. It's yeah, it's my been pleasure. A really enjoyable yeah, conversation. Definitely need another coffee though. Um, 
Kidding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, another good, another line, green but... juice, another espresso. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, no, it's been super fun. Um, I think uh like honestly, like a lot of these topics are topics that don't necessarily get raised on like, you know, the average uh show, right? Like people just want to yeah. talk about like what's the roadmap look like, whatever. I think that like most of the things we talked about early on um are much more important than like specific aspects of any one project, right? Like they're fundamental I agree. things we need to we need to address uh, to move forward. So yeah. Cool yeah. man. Well we'll do it again soon. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. All right, be well. See ya. Bye.